consciousness, mindset, health, relationship, business. Welcome to the Aubrey Marcus Podcast. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Aubrey Marcus Podcast. I'm here today with the founder of the Psychedelic Society of Brooklyn, also a lawyer, which at this given moment in time may seem appear to be a conflict, but soon enough will not be a conflict. Uh, my friend to be here soon, Danny Miller. What's up, Danny? How you doing, man? I'm great, Aubrey. I got to say, uh, it sounds or it seems pretty surreal for me to be here right now. Uh, you mentioned I'm a lawyer. I'm also the founder of a group that advocates, I guess, in some way for psychedelics. Uh, those aren't things that go together at all. Um, and actually, when I, it's not, it goes far beyond that. Uh, I was thinking of stories for this podcast, right? I'm going on a podcast. I need to have something entertaining to say. And I think I have some good stories. So I'm just like going through my mind of stories. And I come across, I think, which is like a gold mine. After college, I applied for a job at the CIA and the NSA. As, <laughs> and, and as part of um, the, the process, I had to interview the polygraph. And they looked over my paperwork and they looked over like the admissions of like everything I had done wrong in my life. And they're like, so we see here that you did mushrooms, magic mushrooms freshman year in college. Would you like to say anything about that? And basically I just was like, I couldn't, was have, awesome. been more, I couldn't, I couldn't have been more apologetic. I think I said, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I do, did that. I'll never do it again. Um, and yet here we are. Yeah. I'm a lawyer, and I'm the founder of this this psychedelic society in Brooklyn. So well, it's a, as long it's as you're not as long as you're not busting people for doing psychedelics, <laughs> I think I think you're on you're okay. I yeah, mean, no, I, we're good. Yeah, I don't imagine you're a prosecutor trying to trying to no. bust hippies at Burning Man or anything like that. That that might provide a slightly <laughs> slightly greater degree of, of of conflict. So you've um you know, in writing this, those that apparent contrast, I think, has been partly what's fueled a lot of the interest in the media. You had um, reports from Vice, Newsweek, Washington Post, and a lot of people kind of picked up your story. Um, and so I'll let you kind of recap that story for people who aren't familiar. And uh, but it's, you know, it's been pretty interesting because people like that juxtaposition. They like, you know, they don't want to see someone dressed in a unicorn costume talking about <laughs> talking about psychedelics, just like when John Lilly showed up in like a raccoon squirrel suit talking about float tanks, like nobody's going to listen. But when lawyers and doctors and scientists and CEOs and people start coming out of the woodwork and explaining the benefits of these things that we all know as medicines, but the government classifies as drugs, people start to pay attention. And that certainly seems like that happened with you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely understand the the appeal. I mean, I definitely don't fit a stereotype. And I think that's part of why I felt compelled to come out of the psychedelic closet, so to speak, uh, and share my story in the Newsweek article. Uh, I think as part of any campaign, any social advocacy campaign, whether it's gay rights or civil rights, uh, you need to present a story which doesn't necessarily re reconcile with the opponent's rhetoric. When you look at gay rights advocacy, I think Senator Portman of Ohio reversed his position on position on gay marriage after his son came out of the closet, after his son admitted he was gay. Uh, I think in my peer group, especially and, and probably beyond, especially with that the Vice article, it's like really hard for people to reconcile the image of a psychedelic user um, as a dropout, as degenerate, as a hippie, as a 1960s do nothing. Given that there are people like me that are standing up and saying, 
I've had an extremely productive, uh, powerful, transformational experience on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of what I'd like to do and what I have done uh, is just continue to voice that message. Uh, that's why I felt compelled to write the Newsweek article. I mean, I had probably, if I were to rank that, I was just thinking about this before I got on the podcast with you, if I had to rank the top five most important moments of my life, uh, the first time I did LSD would be, I, I, it has to be the first, has to be number yeah. one out of everything that's ever happened to me. And I, I was just thinking about all the, uh, the other amazing experiences I've had, like my first court case that I won, or like terrific like sexual experience with like the, the, <laughs> my, 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 my dream girl. And yet this experience on LSD uh, that transformed my life was number one. And I don't even think it's close. Yeah. Um, uh, my entire life, I basically had a super competitive goal-oriented mindset. Um, and I, I, it was basically me against the world. Even when I remember when I collected baseball cards, I wanted more baseball cards than everybody. I wanted to collect all the baseball cards. I didn't really think I, I was on a larger team than it was just Team Danny. Mm -hmm. um, and it, this affected my relationships. It affected how I approached my job. It affected uh, my future. And I had this experience, and it flipped everything on its head. Uh, I'll just tell you, just I think this sort of perhaps encapsulates the experience. Um, with my with my best friend in the world, uh, who had convinced me to experiment with psychedelics, and uh, this is fairly early on in the experience, he he's fond of saying that throughout my entire life, I would tell people that they were out of their depth. Like you're out of your depth. You don't know what you're talking about. You're out of your depth. You're not politically enlightened. You're out of your depth. You don't know enough about sports or science. And I turned to him and I just say, I'm out of my depth. Um, and it was just, I mean, it, it set the tone for an epic. An epic, I don't know, eight twenty-four hour experience. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're saying about you know one of your top life experiences being on a psychedelic that was echoed in that Johns Hopkins psilocybin um, study that they did, where you know people ranked it as either top five or top one. You know, reliably, the majority of people had it as as one of those two. I think above ninety percent ranked it as top five, and a good majority ranked it as the number one single most impactful experience of their life. And I can certainly echo those sentiments. And I've you know, been fortunate enough to experience medicines of a variety of different sorts and had those experiences with ayahuasca, boga, psilocybin. And, you know, definitely, definitely some of the top experiences in my life and helped support me become, you know, the man, CEO, athlete. It's helped me on all aspects of these things, things that psychedelics traditionally in the kind of idea the zeitgeist that's been put out there isn't supposed to help with like it's not supposed to make you a better athlete it's not supposed to make you a better ceo not supposed to do all these things and it certainly has along with the spiritual enlightenment and the you know opening of you know my emotional availability and and general happiness the things that are a little bit more traditional but it's really been a performance enhancer straight up across the board I mean, it can make people more creative, more more intelligent. Mm -hmm. Not to mention happier and healthier people. Um, I I've been listening to to your to your podcast, and I think you talk a little about experiential knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think I've been over intellectualized my entire life. In fact, I thought probably before my experience, the most important thing was how much do I know, how intellectual is my knowledge. Um, and I've been a student of science and of history of the Middle East, and I, I think I knew a lot. But my emotional grasp on things, even though I think I've been an emotional being, it, it was not nearly as predominant or influential a part of my life as it should have been. 
and I'm sitting there on LSD and just I was having these ex 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 basically emotionalizing intellectual thoughts I've had my entire life. Mm -hmm. I was an astrophysics major in college, and uh, so I've you know I've known that the Earth was or the universe was 13.7 billion years old, that the Earth was billions of years old. How how you know how long we've been evolving on this planet as as a human species, um, and I probably could could write down for you like where the agriculture re revolution was and where the industrial revolution was, and I understood where we fit in to this whole story, but I never felt it before. I never felt connected to it before. I never felt part of something larger than myself uh, before. And that moment, the, that series of moments that day, just it, it helped me feel all of these thoughts I had previously had, uh, which is something I think has endured until this day. Uh, and I, I, I'm not saying that everyone should have a psychedelic experience or that it would be beneficial for everybody, but I do think it could help a lot of people. And Disconnection is a, a big problem. It leads to psychopathologies like depression and, and addiction and, and anxiety and existential angst. And these experiences can, can reconnect us to ourselves and to our friends and to our families and to the larger community. Um, and I, I just I had that experience and I, it's not like I woke up the next day and thought to myself, I'm going to be a psychedelics advocate, but I, I, uh, I needed to figure out what happened <laughs> I read I read about you know the neuroscience and I, I read about the psychedelic history, uh, but I obviously it was something I needed to integrate into my life. It's something I needed to do. Yeah, I th I mean I think you're really touching on that that core tenet of truth that the one at least one of the major ones, and that's the the connection to all other things, all other beings, the connection to the planet. You know, I I think the the ego that we have likes to create these smaller little frameworks that define who we are get a very tight identity and define everything else as separate from that and that you know to the ego's point of view is the most advantageous for survival and so it creates these kind of frameworks and when you do something like psychedelics and it really challenges that and you start to realize like okay well i see where that aspect of myself was was going with that but that's also leading to all my anxiety, all the fears I have about things that are challenging that identity, all the fears and stress I have about all of these different things and all the ways that I'm shut off from the available love and connection that you can get from other people, from the planet itself, from any variety of sources. And, and psychedelics reliably will get people to these core truths. And it doesn't matter in a lot of cases which one you do or who you are, you know, very reliably you're gonna come to some similar understandings and that to me you know that to me is science you know when any variety of different individuals can take a variety of different substances and all come independently the same truth you know that's when i start to really think all right this is reproducible you know this is something that that holds up to the skeptical challenges this is there's a core truth there and, and i think that's exactly what you're talking about we, I mean, we evolved, our brains evolved to experience these feelings, obviously. Um, I mean, I, I was with my best friend, and we were both atheists. He convinced me to be an atheist when I was 13 years old. I collected my bar mitzvah money, and then basically he convinced me to stop being Jewish. Um, and so he's been there during, during my spiritual evolution, I guess. But we're you know, both super against the idea that there's some sort of deity out there. My dad, in fact, used to characterize me as like a militant or angry atheist. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there on the ground, my hands on the, in the dirt, I'm just staring at it. And I'm repeating 
I'm repeating, I'm saying one after the other for like an hour, these mystical sayings um, that have been associated with religion and spirituality for thousands of years. And my best friend's like a, not a Buddhist, but he's a practitioner of meditation. He studied the hood mysticism scale and other measures of spirituality. And he just can't believe it. I mean, he's, he tried psychedelics before, but he's never seen somebody say all of these things. And like a certain way, it helped me like understand that, yeah, sure, religion and spirituality, there's a lot of crap and bullshit that goes along with that. And it's been used to manipulate and control. But there is some truth that's inside of it mm-hmm. um, that, I, that I had never really seen before. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the biggest issues is that, you know, when all of that other stuff got layered on top of religion, you know, all of the, most of the intelligent people around knew enough to discard, you know, these religions, like, you know, from all the major desert religions, when, when we sense that inherent bullshit that was involved in it. And I was the same way, you know, I was on a, I I remember the, the turning point for me is I went to Italy and I went and visited the dungeons of the inquisition in this small town. And I saw these horrific torture devices used in the name of God. And I was like, this is bullshit. You know, like this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And, and I also saw it played out. I went to a high school in Texas. I saw so many people racked with guilt for these natural things. I mean, if you're a 15 year old, 16 year old dude, you're going to have sexual thoughts. Like, you know, like forget about it. Like you shouldn't feel guilty about it. What unfair deity, bullshit you <laughs> you know, would punish you for those things. And I saw these people suffering. So I was on a campaign. I remember I would read Christopher Hitchens. I would, I would, I would on purpose bring that book, God is not great to the airports and read it. Stay with with me. Yeah. Like read it high in the sky. Like you want to talk to me about this? Like, let's go, let's talk about it. And then, you know, I had my first psychedelic experience where I felt literally felt my body melt away and then realized, Oh, well, there's something here besides this meat sack. And I guess I got to rethink a few things and then started to build my own experiential form of form of religion. And the farther I've gone, the more truths I've seen in these religions as you dive deeper and get beyond the dogma and start to recognize these core mystical truths that are in, in so many of them. I mean, I think you also touched on the idea that we're all sort of telling ourselves a story. And I think I'm still telling myself a story. But my stories is bigger than it used to be. My box mm-hmm. is bigger than it used to be. Um, it, it encompasses more other people's boxes. It's more inclusive. It's more connected. And I, I, I sort of struggle with the idea. I don't want to tell everybody they should do psychedelics. It's not for everybody. But sure. there's a special, I had a special experience. Um, and I, I think we need to have a conversation in society about, about it, the place of these drugs um, in our culture, in our society. And I think that's sort of what I want to do going forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I like, I'm kind of a utopist and I like to look at creating these ideal futures. And, you know, I think having an, having a real structure in place like you have with Christianity or Judaism or these religions where you have these institutions and rituals and different things to support and foster spiritual experiences, except in our society now, for the most part, they're fairly hollow. You know, I mean, you're bringing kids to these things, you're going and you're just trying to pay attention long enough to get out of there and show face and they don't carry the real weight of a true spiritual experience. And if I'm looking at rebuilding a society in a different way, I think incorporating these, these different plant medicines and psychedelic medicines 
could be the way to truly connect people. I mean, if everybody on Sunday at 11 a.m. noon or whatever had their psilocybin-based ceremony <laughs> experience and then came out into the world, I mean, that would be some shit. I mean, that would be something really different. And I think, you know, there's some churches that have tried that and they kind of weave in some of the Christianity, like the Church of Santo Daime and the UDV, uh, the ayahuasca churches from Brazil. And they've had some, certainly some success, but really just starting from scratch and saying like, let's connect people to their own truth. Let them introduce them to their own God. Like let them find these truths themselves. And, you know, that's the core of, of shamanism and how it differs from religion. Religion is, I'll tell you, trust me. Shamanism is, I'll show you. Don't trust me or not. You <laughs> find out for yourself. And I, and I think that's, you know, far and away the better way to go. Um, I mean, it would be great if we had a day where everyone tripped together or at least a lot of people did. I think uh, Rogan had Rick Doblin on mm -hmm. a couple days ago, and they were talking about having a national MDMA day. I think Rogan said something like, uh, Christopher Columbus has a day, and he was like an asshole. <laughs> right. uh, you know? Right. Um, MDMA, I've had an experience in MDMA, which was just, I mean, I experienced pure love. Yep. A pure self-love. Uh, I wasn't judgmental. I wasn't condescending. I could relate and empathize with everybody. Uh, it didn't feel superficial whatsoever, and, and for people that are suffering from actual trauma, it's it could be like a functional cure. Um, but it's an experience I think a lot of people should have. Yeah. Uh, and yet, people think of MDMA, they think of the holes in the brain on Oprah, or they think of all the propaganda. Yeah, we just yeah, need to. The crazy the thing about that, the crazy thing about that holes in the brain study is it wasn't <laughs> even MDMA. It was right. it was methamphetamines that they tested. Right. This label, right. MDMA, like gives you holes in the brain. Oh, whoops! A few years later. <laughs> That wasn't actually MDMA, but holes in the brain. Let's just keep that part. Yeah. Um, have you ever have you ever read Huxley? I have. Yeah. Doors of Perception. Uh, Island. Islands. I mean, Island inspired me to write that Washington Post article because you have this utopian island which integrates psychedelics like maturely into their culture, like part mm -hmm. of coming of age rituals and Moshka. part of Moshka. It, yeah. it's, it's it's a model we could use. Uh, when I think of the future of Brooklyn, for example, I think of like taking Island and just like taking the good parts of Island and placing it in Brooklyn. But we'll see. That's, that's a long time in the future. Yeah, 100%. That book, I've read it twice now. And it's one of the most impactful books in my life because so many of those different ideas, I think, are powerful. I mean, obviously, that mountain climb to the high altitude shrine where you get to you know, get introduced to mushrooms by the elders of your your tribe, so to speak, at that point. I mean... What a beautiful coming of age ceremony. I mean, I was I was Jewish, but not enough to do the bar mitzvah. And I know you went through it. And that used to have a little more grit to it. I think they used to I think they used to give the 13-year-olds a woman to have sex with and you know, like a few things that had a little more grit. But now it's just a, it's a lot of fluff. You know, it's really a lot of fluff. But that, you know, and and you know, my little brother went through it and he didn't consider himself more of a man the next day as he did before. But if you took Huxley's model where he's climbing to the top of this mountain and, you know, getting introduced to a flood dose of mushrooms for the first time, yeah, he's going to be a little different when he comes down that mountain. You know, there's going to be a little different swagger to, uh, to him. And, and I think that's a major part of what's missing. We have this, you know, we become from boy to man in this when, how does that happen? There's no rituals. There's no ceremony. There's no way it just kind of happens one day you one day you wake up and you're like shit i'm an adult but i don't feel any different you know so having these ceremonies put in place is one of the really great ideas of that just but one of the many for sure yeah i mean i think my entire life i've been trying i always questioned authority i always 
uh, question the rules. I didn't really accept anything anyone ever told me, which has been difficult because a lot of the establishment's good. Mm -hmm. A lot of the rules my parents told me to follow were good, but as like a matter of principle, I just never followed anything. Psychedelics has like sort of given me underlying principles that feel right. They feel like basic truths um, in a way that, that other things I've learned in my life haven't. Um, so if I could have incorporated them earlier on, I think it would have been, I'd even have, um, I don't know, I'd, I'd be better off for it, I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, they've been a, <clears throat> they've been a guiding light for me. I, I took my first psychedelic experience was like 18 or 19 um, in the mountains of New Mexico. And that was what started me on the path. And it's really, once you've, once you've tasted that, you know, there's really no looking back. Like once you have that direct experiential access to these things, you know, that's the criteria that you uphold. And, and one of the things that's been great too, is the more information that I add, the more books I read, the more understanding of other mystical teachings I read, it's, it's almost like I can connect big parts of the puzzle. You know, the psychedelic can provide different connections to different things. Like I remember reading recently, I read uh, this guy, Dr. Joe Dispenza wrote a great book called You Are the Placebo. And I read that book right before I read Don Miguel Ruiz's last book, The Toltec Art of Life and Death. And then able in, in one psychedelic experience was able to draw all of these connections between these two books that I normally wouldn't have been able to see on my own. So it's not just that the truths come like magic fairy dust through the ether and plant in your brain. You're making connections from stuff you learn and, and creating new things from the pieces that you have available, which is why I think it's so important, not just for, you know, for everybody to really who is interested and who who is suitable, but like scientists and astrophysicists, like, like you are going to be and all of these different people, because it can enhance their knowledge base and help them connect pieces to the puzzle based upon what they know. You know, it's not like a standard set of information. It unlocks a higher access of your own brain. Yeah. And I feel like we just become more integrated um, by taking these drugs. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's a brave new world. And I, I, I mean, the, the study no, that just came no out of it. No Huxley pun intended. <laughs> I actually haven't, I haven't read brave new world, but uh, yeah, no, no, pun, no, no pun intended. Um, I mean, the, the study that just came out of Imperial College London that's been funded by uh, Beckley Foundation mm -hmm. uh, just like showed the imaging of, of the brain. And it's not that just we see how LSD affects the brain. We see how LSD affects consciousness. We, it's like mm -hmm. possibly not just a key to our mind, but a key to neuroscience in general. Um, and I, I, I just think that there's so much exploration worth doing. And I think that, I think that there's a lot of momentum in society now. I mean, the studies aren't just at Johns Hopkins and Imperial College. They're at UCLA and University of New Mexico, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, and at some point, people are going to start asking the question that, you know, if these drugs can help the sick and the terminally ill and the addicted and the depressed, well, then maybe they should help all of us. Um, why, are we just, why are we ignoring the vast majority of society? Yeah. Aren't we all sick and aren't we all addicted on some level? And that's a major paradigm shift as well. You know, I mean, looking at the body holistically instead of chasing down symptoms and in the process trampling around and creating new symptoms which tends to be the pharmaceutical track you know which you know certain pharmaceuticals have great benefit and have saved you know countless lives but a lot of them um you know ignores some of these core principles of what is the cause what is the very root cause of the sickness you know why why are why is there this depression what and it, not everything is materialist reductionist you know some have to do with your consciousness some have to do with patterns of thinking and um you know these medicines tend to get to those core 
core principles, which is why they have such a dramatic impact. But, you know, fortunately, I, I agree with you. I think we've now that we've let the cat out of the bag and these trials are ongoing, they're unstoppable. There's no way to interject anything else, you know, that can really stop them other than just massive hysteria and fear and other tactics like that. But science is so well supported now in our society that once you open the door to these clinical trials, these double blind placebo controlled randomized trials, the the data speaks for itself. And I think that's a really different way that psychedelics are approaching mainstream than they did in the 60s. And one of the reasons why it failed then, but I fully believe it'll succeed now. Right. I mean, we don't have the Timothy Learys of the world have been replaced by Rick Doblin and Roland Griffiths, the scientists, yeah. the responsible advocates that aren't telling everybody to, to take drugs and, and drop out of society. Um, and they're taking place in controlled settings. Uh, you know, I saw on Facebook the other day, LSD was trending, which to me was fascinating. I think it's probably <laughs> the first time ever LSD was trending. And it wasn't because some fucking guy jumped off a bridge, allegedly because of LSD. It's because we've finally imaged what it does to your mind. And I, I, there's no putting this back in the bag. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And that just makes me really, really happy. Uh, we'll see yeah. if I can convince. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you look out and, and the, world, the world needs some massive help right now. And you look out at the allies and the tools that we have available. You know, and I was always a big gamer when I was growing up. Fortunately, the games weren't as good as they are now because I think I would have never stopped being a gamer if they were as good as they are now. I don't know how the kids survive with all the, all the tools they had. I mean, the games that I played when I was a kid sucked and I still played them all the time. But it's like, you know, if you're trying to win the game and fix, you know, a lot of the problems, you have these incredible, all-powerful weapons that are just sitting on the shelf and everybody's saying like, no, 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 don't use those. Like, those are the ones that we need to use to you know, to combat everything else that's going on now, all of the other pressures and things that we have to deal with, those are the tools, some of the greatest tools that we have available. And I think, you know, pretty soon here, they're going to be taken off the shelf in a major way. I agree. Um, so I think it, part of the what we're doing with my group is some of us think that the path, the, sorry for a second, the future is inevitable, right? We, start, we should start planning for an eventual... Um, bureaucracy, like what will society look like? How can we plan for it? How can we envision it? How can, mm -hmm. can we envision a post-prohibition future? And I have a friend of mine who's, who's an architectural student and a senior thesis was literally designing buildings for a post-prohibition world. Like how would you design a building to facilitate tripping in a psychotherapist's office? How would you design a church for using DMT as the sacrament? How would you design all, how would you de design a funeral or like a, a place of worship for a funeral where psychedelics were integrated to that experience. Um, and I mean, there are so many different ways you can integrate these substances into different paradigms and different institutions, but you need to bring together the politicians and the engineers and the architects. And that's something that me and my friends are starting to do at least, um, we're thinking of starting a blog uh, that, that will envision, critically envision post-prohibition. I mean, I think that there, there's a whole future that, that's yet to be written and we can start at least thinking, thinking about it. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, and it, I love that. It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah, totally. Really exciting. That's um, awesome. I'm, I've, <clears throat> I've only done that in my own fantasies, but it's, it's killer to hear that you guys are already, you know, putting pen to paper on that kind of stuff because, you know, 
I think there's a few things like that, like Alex Gray made his Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, and there's a, a few different things that are that are going along those lines, but on the large scale, yeah, I mean, that's could be so incredibly powerful. And actually some of the structures that exist, like if you look at the the patterns on a mosque, you know, those are so DMT. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that would be an amazing place to trip, but obviously right now it's frowned upon as a, as a lot of things would I mean, be probably. My but, dad was a, a Middle East peace negotiator, so he had dealt a lot with the Israelis and Palestinians. I mean, that's an intractable societal problem. I'm not sure how you're going to solve it. Maybe you redesign the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem and help Israelis and Palestinians to trip together. I don't know, but the, obviously there are a lot of novel ways you could use these substances. Um, but I also think it's important in my mind, yes, the future is inevitable. It's just a matter of time. Uh, but public opinion, I mean, 10% of the people think LSD should be legalized and the rest uh, are completely against it. So it's important that as, as the science continues and it evolves and shows the therapeutic benefit of these substances, uh, that the public opinion doesn't lag behind. Um, and so I think advocacy does have a, like a pretty good place. And so, uh, there's a campaign that I'm a part of called Psychedelics Because, and there are like five different groups, MAPS, Drug Policy Alliance, my group, SSDP, and then it's led by Symposia, um, who's spearhead spearheading the entire effort. But basically it's why do you support psychedelics? And it's not just because you've done them or out of, out of the closet, but there are just so many reasons to support psychedelics. Like hashtag psychedelics because I'm a veteran with PTSD, or hashtag psychedelics because it helped me quit smoking like me or hashtag psychedelics because you know the Eleusinian mysteries that lasted for 2,000 years in ancient Greece and Plato and Herodotus attended could possibly have involved an LSD type of substance or like psychedelics because in indigenous societies all over the world right now they've maturely integrated these substances I mean there are literally like dozens and dozens of really good reasons uh, for psychedelics because um, the the opposite, the counterpoint is psychedelics not because, and it's hard for me to think of one. So yeah, that's I, I think it's important why we acknowledge the future seems to be trending in a certain way, um, and the science is certainly going in one way that we need to to bring everyone else with us, and that takes like disciplined advocacy, and I think a lot of us are are, are engaged in that. At least I hope. Yeah, I agree, and and I think um, <clears throat> you know I think we all, we have to be careful of. Um, two sides of that too. I, I think some of the some of the individuals who are like deeply entrenched in that psychedelic culture, particularly in the traditional plant medicines, they almost are like, oh man, now it's just going to get popularized and it's going to lose its magic. But you know, and while I hear what they're saying about that, like, oh, you know, what will happen if we take these cultures, you know, traditions and bring them out in the mainstream? Like, yeah, I hear that, but at the same time for a large part the world is sick and you know to to withhold the medicine to the world because you want to have some special sacred thing that's just yours just the chosen ones get to experience it is bullshit you know like a sick world needs medicine and in so many ways in so many different avenues these these psychedelics can help people that it has to be brought out and i think we got to move past the the kind of the mysticism of the jungle yeah it has its place and it's beautiful and i love listening to ikaros when i do ayahuasca and i have immense respect for that but at the same time when we envision the future let's envision it encompassing everyone you know not just trying to protect these these traditions and systems let's optimize and create it 
to make it the best medicine that it can possibly be, you know, do what Huxley did with his mushka. I mean, he was actually fantasizing about creating a different type of medicine, you know, like the exact right type that he could, that everybody in society could take. That's why he didn't call it mushrooms or he didn't call it um, mescaline or he didn't call it anything else. Cause in his mind, he, he thought that there would be just that right thing uh, that they could dial in. And, you know, I think that's the way, that's the way that we should think about it is use all the tools that we have available, you know, not be bound by any mysticism or any dogma or any, thing in the past, look at these things and, and recognize that, you know, with any medicine, there's a lethal dose, there's a time when it's not applicable. And that's something I talk about, you know, frequently, like you gotta, you gotta have respect for this. This isn't holy water. This isn't of divine origin. You know, you give someone six grams of mushrooms, they may freak out and it's probably not going to be a good experience, you know, much better to give them the minimum effective dose, like a true principle that you would apply medicine in a situation that's, that has, you know, that's sanitized, that has good, clean energy around it, you know, because it is energetic medicine. So approaching it in these, with these kind of modern principles like we do with medicine, but then recognizing the other thing that it has, these immense spiritual benefits, like that's the future that I want to envision. Absolutely. We need to bring as many people as possible into this tent. Um, and to, the idea of depriving depriving someone of it or like a, the popular culture, the mainstream of it, because it then it'll become less cool or it'll lose its flavor or it will be somehow manipulated. I mean, I had to smile, not every day. I mean, I, I've reverted to my pre-LSD self um, months ago, but I have this, I have this smile that I can, I can access um, and this perspective that, that still has endured. And I, I want everyone to have that, that ability. Um, I was with another really, really good friend of mine who had his first experience with LSD a couple months ago, in the middle of it, uh, he turns to me and look, I've been bothering him for a long time after my experience. You got to do LSD. This is amazing. And I, all my friends and my family are just really annoyed because everything that we talk about seemingly is about psychedelics. And my friend is, is part of that. Like, you know, he just would tell me, Danny, we can hang out, but no more LSD talk. But he turns to me in the middle of his trip and he says, um, we've got to get everybody to do this, <laughs> right? Which yeah. is funny because that's like kind of what I'm trying to do, but it's like this recognition that he had in the middle, that this is like something unbelievable, something transformational. And he's having this wonderful experience with me. Um, and yeah, uh, we shouldn't deprive anybody of it. Um, we should give every, it should be an option that people should have. Uh, mm-hmm. And they should understand the, the, the costs and the benefit and benefits and the risks. Uh, I'm actually writing a piece right now about a how-to guide to avoid a bad trip. Um, mm-hmm. And I frankly kind of feel out of my depth and not, um, uh, not experienced enough to write this, but I've interviewed some people. And yeah, these drugs are not to be trifled with. I remember during my first LSD trip, I turned to my best friend and I said, how many decades have passed? And I literally, I think decades have passed. <laughs> and he just yeah. keeps pointing at he's Danny. Po- he's pointing at the sun. He says the sun hasn't moved. The sun hasn't moved. But I was terrified. I mean, these drugs are can be terrifying. Sure, um, and they bring up traumatic experiences, things we should deal with, but only in a in certain environment. So yeah, the, the conversation just needs to be open, so we really are aware of all the the good and the bad. 
Yeah, I actually, um, <clears throat> I wrote an article um, about that, uh, something similar that I published in my blog. I'll send it off to you that you can maybe snag some tidbits from for uh, for your article because I think it's really, it's really important. And I think that kind of harm reduction model, I know a lot of different um, groups are out there doing that at festivals and just yeah. having people with some sense about how to deal with <clears throat> deal with these experiences when they go a little bit awry. You know, and I end up getting a lot of calls <laughs> late night from different people because people know like shit, if something's going really wrong, you know, who are they going to call and talk to about this? Not their parents. So I end up getting some of these calls and it generally, you know, I just say, oh, no worries. You're experiencing what I would call the classic. You know, you think people are out to get you. You're freaking out a little bit. You got paranoia and fear. Like, don't worry. This is the classic. You'll get over it. It's all good. And you just kind of talk them through it. But just them knowing like, oh, this is normal. Like tons of people do this. You know, this is, it just kind of puts them at ease because your mind can create all of these fantasies that are sometimes a little bit hard to sift from truth. But if, and that's where the experience of cultivating the right the right setting comes in and the right dose, you know, with the minimum effective dose in the right setting, similar to what, you know, MAPS is doing, what these different people are doing on the trials, you know, you can really dial in the experience to make it so that there's very little chance of things going awry. But even when you have everything right, you know, I've been a part of a Wachuma ceremony where I watched someone go fairly unglued. And, um, you know, he was, he ended up being fine and stayed there the retreat. But during that experience, he needed special attention. And that'll happen from time to time. And you have to have people, practitioners there that just know how to navigate those waters. And I think that's, uh, that's an important element as well. Absolutely. Um, and I, I certainly don't know nearly enough. I, I, I'm still a learner. I mean, I had my first experience not that long ago. Um, and I just think it's a, it's a constant learning experience. And it's not like you can ever, ever get to a place where you're, you're completely comfortable with these, with these drugs, with these medicines. Um, you should always have respect for them. Uh, and I, yeah. I think some people- they will, they will humble your ass. <laughs> I remember exactly. a few times, the few times that I thought I had it figured out, I've just gotten crushed. You know, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Like, ah, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I remember I went into a mushroom ceremony and it was like, a really small dose. And I was like, I got this is like yawning and stretching. And it ended up being the most intense experience I've ever had, you know, challenged me to the greatest depth. And I've done, you know, a boga, these 36 hour intense psychedelics, and nothing was more challenging than this, like 1.2 grams of mushrooms. So, you know, it's just, you got to be prepared and, and humble and there to surrender and, and learn and, and uh, just have some respect for, uh, for these things. Absolutely. Um, do you mind if I give some shout outs? I know this is not even near the end maybe, but I, I, I feel compelled. Please, please. Um, my group, I got to say, one of the, the happiest things about starting this group for me has been there have been people that I feel have been in the closet. They haven't been able to, to express themselves in a certain way. And this group has like created a safe space where they could come together and talk about their experiences. They could talk about what they've learned and what they've, uh, what they've written. I have a friend who um, was, is a retired librarian who wrote his PhD uh, thesis in philosophy on a related topic. Uh, but because of the time period that, that he studied this, he didn't really have an opportunity to utilize those skills. Uh, this was after the 60s when, when these drugs were just basically put back into the box. They were prohibited. There was no study. 
either academic or, or scientific, and and we're coming together and, and and writing about this together, and it's just it's it's helped him find his intellectual groove. I have another friend, Colin Pugh, who designed the 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 logo for for our group, and it's like all these people with creative energies that have uh, that care about this this topic that that didn't used to have a way to express themselves now have 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 that way. I have a friend, Noah Potter, who's a lawyer like me, who um, I guess has wanted to advocate for psychedelics for a very long time, for like 15 years, but didn't have any avenue to do so because there just wasn't in vogue. There was no opportunity. There was no space in society. Uh, and he came up with the hashtag psychedelics because. So it's like there are all these people, whether or not they've had experiences or not, for whatever reason, they, they, they are passionate about about psychedelics and they want to help create a future world where psychedelics can benefit people and, and there's now this opportunity in society. Society is saying we value your opinion, like we mm -hmm. value your creativity, we value your science, we value your, your intellect and that just makes me really happy because when people, when their talent or skill sets go to waste, that's just, it's sad. Um, sure. They, they don't self-actualize. That's, that's, that's a root cause of a lot of suffering, you know, people are put into roles that society tells them they should do and they don't have the insight or courage or whatever it may be to you know find out what their truest calling is what their win at life is and express that to the fullest and instead you know they go to their doctor complaining oh, i'm unhappy and then you get pills which numb it but don't fix it and then it creates this cascade whereas if you're expressing your force to the utmost ability if you're the wind that moves your particular type of tall grass and you're actualizing what your potential is, you know, that's the sheerest path to happiness that I know, you know, and I think that's something that, you know, all of these things in this open conversation can support. I mean, when you smash down ideas, whether it's through religion or through dogma or through policy, it has a, it has a larger effect than just the, the microcosm of what you're dealing with. And I think even just, allowing people to talk about these things that freely that they haven't been able to talk about can have a huge benefit, you know? So I, I applaud you uh, for what you're doing. I think, you know, there should be more like it. Is there any way that other individuals who are interested could form their own psychedelic societies of their own cities? Have you guys looked so at you know, actually, having different chapters? Right. So that's actually something that some people are considering, like having a national psychedelic society that would serve as like a, a model for others to follow. Um, but what's extraordinary is that, th so my group is not the first group. There have been many before it um, that just for whatever reason haven't, ha haven't gotten any, any press, but there's a psychedelic society of San Francisco. There's a psychedelic society of Atlanta. There's one in Baltimore, uh, the symposia. There, there, there's countless groups and there are more forming because you have people like me that have these experiences and just want to do something about it. They don't even know what. When I started this group, I had no idea what it would be or what it would do. I just knew I had to do something. And there are people that, that because these drugs have become less stigmatized, have their own transformational experiences and then want to share them with the world. And I just think that that's tremendous. Mm -hmm. It's like the, not, it's the least egotistical, like most productive and, and just communal, community kind of, of, of sentiment that's, that's, that's generating these different groups. And I'm really happy to be kind of a part of, of this movement. Um, yeah, I agree. Have you from, are you familiar with the, uh, the Chavin culture of Peru, the ancient culture no. of Chavin? So that's, <clears throat> that's an interesting time period in history. So one of the 
superpowers in Peru before the Incas was this culture called the Chavin. They were flourished around 3,000 years ago. And interestingly, during that period, if you look at the archaeological records, for about six to 800 years, there is no evidence of war. The weapons of war, the implements of war, the, the different things that, that accompany most of human history you know, were absent from that period. And that's been something of an anomaly to archaeologists who track it up to an anomaly. But coinciding with that, Chavin had a policy where they served the sacrament Wachuma, which is San Pedro, which is very much like an MDMA-like serotonergic heart-opening psychedelic medicine to all pilgrims, all comers in the region. You could bring a gift if you wanted. You didn't have to. Anybody could participate in these massive ceremonies that they would have around the land zone, which is like their spiritual antenna. And they would provide these ceremonies and sacraments for anybody who came. And war just disappeared from the region. You know, I mean, everybody who came could experience this. And it was a really interesting time in history. And I think we're entering potentially another one of those times if we if we allow it and if we don't resist it. I mean, where conflict resolution, you know, you bring the leaders, conflict resolution on MDMA is, you know, without a doubt going to be <laughs> much more highly effective. I mean, imagining getting the groups of leaders, world leaders together and having a facilitated MDMA discussion, you know, regarding these issues, you know, just with their hearts open and really looking at both sides as equals and seeing each other for who they are. I mean, the, the impact of that downstream could be astronomical. And, and I think that's that's a potential future that we have once these medicines get legalized and it'll start happening slowly on its own. And then hopefully, eventually, it'll become part of the institutional fabric of the structures themselves as people like you and I and other people in this movement become leaders. And, you know, that old kind of the old guard, um, you know, moves on and this new guard comes comes to fruition i think we have a chance to build that future to make you know the world our own our own island so to speak absolutely uh and it's interesting when you think of uh the people we're trying to convince uh a lot of people are afraid i mean legitimately afraid they're not propagandized but they think of these drugs they understand what's entailed i mean psychedelic means ma mind manifest uh your fears are some really scary things uh facing your fear facing who you really are it isn't something that it's, I mean, the reason why, one of the main reasons why psychedelics aren't addictive is because doing like LSD is an ordeal. I mean, that's not even talking about Ibogaine or ayahuasca or something. I'm talking about LSD, like a much more tame psychedelic in some ways. It's an ordeal. It lasts for the whole day. You, you go through periods of suffering. You're scared. And then you're hungover for the next day because you're, you're exhausted. Um, people aren't really looking for that experience. People sometimes are just comfortable being comfortable. Um, and even me, someone who obviously had this transformational experience and thinking of, of my future uh, use, I've been afraid. Um, and I mean, from what I've heard about ayahuasca or the plant medicines in general, they, they seem like more like they're medicine. They're, like, they seem like they're medicines in a way that, that nothing I've done has seemed like it's a medicine. Like they go in, they target really important things that need to be examined. Um, and, and it almost seems like based on the descriptions, listening to you talk about your experiences and others, like they're magic. I mean, they're not magic. Everything that happens psychologically has a biological correlate. Everything we think has a physical correlate. That being said, um, I was, I've been afraid to like embrace the plant medicine 
Um, but yeah, I, I think we all have to get over our, our fear. Uh, people who haven't experienced them, who are, who are, are running away from their fears need to understand that living in fear is no way to live. Um, and yeah, I just hope we all can just help each other have productive experiences. Yeah. Very, very wise words. And, and, you know, for me, I've, uh, I've recently had a LSD experience, which was actually my first. And it's been, I haven't even talked about that or, or even, <laughs> uh, even mentioned that cause I've been pretty heavy into the plant medicines. Um, and so I feel comfortable being able to make a description that I haven't been able to do before. And for me, LSD felt like a young, brilliant doctor, you know, like a, like a young, brilliant doctor that was going to try some stuff out. And some of that stuff was going to work incredibly well and be like right on point. And then some of the plant medicines are kind of like that, that older, wiser doctor, you know, like the one that's just a little slower with his procedures, maybe, you know, has still has the brilliance, but has just eons of time and practice and has seen so many thousands more patients, you know, and I think that's the, I think that's the distinction for me there. I think they all have the potential to be medicines. Um, LSD felt like, felt like it tried a few things out that I was like, where are you going with this? <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, I don't know. Let's <laughs> just, you know, whereas no. a lot of times with the plants, I can, every different branch that, that I go down, I can be like, oh, I see why you were taking me there. Oh, I see why you were taking me there. But it doesn't mean that they're any more medicine or less. It's just kind of like a new, it's just kind of like a different spirit that they have. I mean, and obviously by saying spirit, I'm also not ignoring the fact that it's a different psychopharmacology, you know? So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I kind of, I do think that the LSD and, and other psychedelics are, are certainly medicines too. At the same time, I feel like I need to give credit where credit is due. I mean, these, these plant medicines were developed over a long period of time. It wasn't a mistake. Yeah. Like there was probably a lot of guessing and checking. A lot of people probably had terrible experiences before, before they really figured out the right kind of concoction. LSD was just synthesized by some, by Albert Hoffman, 1943, by accident. Um, um, it, it's, a, it's an incredible tool, but it can be certainly disruptive. In fact, the day after my experience, I was recently talking to my best friend and my best friend said, you know, that, I thought that experience was incredibly disruptive for you. And I mean, in some ways it was like I was on some equilibrium and, and the experience knocked me the fuck off of it. Uh, uh, I was talking to my good friend who, who had an experience, first experience in LSD, and he compared it to, to playing Jenga. Um, and how you can like move the different pieces around, yeah. you know, like you can move, your mind gets really flexible. Well, my LSD experience was like someone just knocked the whole Jenga set over and I got to start over again. Um, so that seems like less of a medicine. Uh, it was certainly productive and transformational, but yeah. ayahuasca and the other plant medicines I've heard about seem like they're much more intentioned. Like someone almost figured out how to do this um, and it integrate it to the, yeah. with the I would I would tend to agree, having now experienced the <laughs> gamut, that it's just there's this real there's this almost intelligence that comes through that's really seems to be beyond you. You know, like man, how did how did they know that's exactly where I needed to go? And right. uh, it can be pretty powerful. But it's a trial by fire. I mean, particularly ayahuasca, boga. I mean, these things are literally you're throwing yourself in the in the fire of your own psyche and your own consciousness. And um, you know, you got to be ready for that. And uh, but if you are, and if you're willing to go into your fears, and um, it can be amazingly powerful. And I think you know one of the things that comes with it is LSD has very very few like psych like uh, physiological effects that are 
that are too challenging. You don't get overwhelmingly nauseous. You don't, you don't, your heat regulation is, you know, relatively stable. There can be some fluctuations, but with ayahuasca reliably, you're going to feel in a boga, you're reliably going to feel horrible. You know, so the combination of a psychedelic with feeling horrible inevitably is going to make you afraid that you're going to die. <laughs> so, so I think you almost always reliably, that's why they call it the vine of souls or the vine of death, because you reliably have to get past your fear of death because, well, you feel like you're fucking dying. <laughs> that's, that's like a good, a good part of the medicinal aspect of it. But, and, um, and you know what? That, that ordeal part of this isn't something that has no, it has a significant benefit. I mean, I feel a lot of us are just way too comfortable going through these ordeals and coming out the other way and like seeing that you're okay, you survived. That has a lot of benefit. I mean, the other day I, I got food poisoning. I was like really sick and I go into the bathroom to like throw water in my face and I just collapse and I'm on the floor like really sick. And this had been pre-LSD. I would have been terrified. I would have called the ambulance. And I just thought to myself, I'm really sick. I'll get over it. I'll come out the other end. Um, and it's like, I don't think I'd ever really gone through that sort of ordeal before. And it's prepared me for other things in life, um, which is which is interesting. A nice ancillary benefit, I guess. Yeah, I think there's an old Latin saying that says, you know, if only we were as good a men as we were, as we promised when we were sick, <laughs> when we were well. You know, like some, some saying along those lines, like when you're sick, you're like, if I get well, I'm going to be the best man <laughs> I ever was. <laughs> and I think there is something to the ordeal of that. But there's also medicines like I did this frog poison called combo and that was to me purely an ordeal it was just straight ordeal poisoning um, I was actually sick for two months had no real benefit other than making me feel horrible <laughs> so I think you know there's a, the balance of medicine and then just purely suffering <laughs> I think some of these things called medicines like that frog toxin uh, I'm pretty sure that's just ordeal poisoning have you ever done 5-MeO DMT I have yeah yeah, in a variety um, in a variety of different ways. It's it's very potent, uh, different than NNDMT, uh, pretty substantially different, but much more emotional and less visual, less fireworks. Um, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I've heard stories. I've heard stories. Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not nearly ready for that yet, but we'll see sometime in the future. All right. Well, if you become ready at any point, <laughs> you got my number. Reach out, and we'll. Uh, <laughs> We'll take a trip down to the jungle somewhere and, and figure some shit out. It'll be fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, anything um, anything else you want to give a shout out to or direct people to? Um, I mean, I just, I guess it's important for me to say, I feel a little self-conscious with my group. Like this group, I, I'm really happy that we formed. There's over 700 members. We've had 15 different events. Uh, but there are lots of other groups that haven't gotten publicity. Uh, for a variety of different re reasons, and I, I kind of feel like some of them have been left out. Uh, I think I've already talked about my individual members who've done a lot of work and haven't gotten any recognition. Um, but just a shout out, not only to Psychedelic Society of San Francisco, um, Psychedelic Seminars in Baltimore and Symposia, uh, and MAPS obviously gets an incredible amount of, of publicity and for good reason. I mean, Rick Dobbs, um, he's like one of the main reasons why we're at where we are with the science and the advocacy. Um, and uh, I'm just happy to be alongside all these other people that have been working hard for a very long time and toiling in obscurity for a very long time to get to where we are right now. Uh, and I can't wait for the future and I hope to be a productive part of it. 
Beautiful. I think you already are, my friend. It's been great to meet you and hang out. Thanks for coming on this podcast. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely, Aubrey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. I'll look you up when I'm uh, heading to New York next time, and uh, we'll definitely link up for some coffee. Absolutely. All Have right, a weekend. All right, you too. Take care, dear. I'd like to acknowledge the company that is the expression of so many things I love, onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T.com, and also wearspace.com with two S's, putting out some really dope clothes and supporting my favorite charities. Lastly, please check out my blog, aubreymarcus.com, for the latest in all the ventures happening in my world. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend, leave a review, and let's make this positivity contagious. Thanks for tuning in.